0: in ages three through first grade are welcome to participate in children's church and they'll be dismissed out these doors uh, to our right. And I want to ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter one. We're beginning our series in Romans as we've said and we'll be here pretty much the whole year. Um, My goal is to be thorough enough that we really do get a sense of all that Paul is sharing with us, this is the longest of the New Testament letters. Um, but I also don't want to um, get so so detailed that we get bogged down in it. So anyway, that's that's the hope, that's the goal. I'm going to just look at the the welcome, the intro, as Paul begins his letter. He has, uh, <laughs> as he's prone to do. Uh, A little bit of a run-on sentence, so his greeting goes for seven verses, and uh, I I love the example that this gives to us. Uh, Paul frequently, you'll catch him, and we know it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he just sometimes can't stop, can't help himself but talking about who God is and what God's done in his life, and that, that convicts me. When's the last time I was really guilty of that? Um, you know, where I couldn't stop proclaiming his goodness. I couldn't stop declaring his praises for who he is and what he's done in my life. That seems to be kind of par for the course for Paul. Let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses one through seven. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask for you to reveal uh, to our minds and to our hearts more and more of your reality, of your identity, of uh, your commitment to love, your commitment to justice, your commitment to us, to redeem us, and to give us Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. This is, uh, as I mentioned, Paul's longest letter in um, among the 13 that we have recorded in the In the New Testament, um, it's, I think, uh, a general consensus that he wrote more than 13 letters. We just, in God's providence, only have 13 of those that he actually wrote. And this is the longest. And this letter gives us uh, the clearest outline of what is the gospel. And it's not an accident that in the New Testament you've got the four gospels, and then the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. So you've sort of got the Gospel authors, first five books in the New Testament, and then you got Romans. Um, Romans is the longest letter in the New Testament. It's also sort of the most theologically rich, and, and it has a priority. Um, that was intentional in terms of the order that, uh, that we have received the New Testament books of the Bible. Um, it's not only the longest letter in the Bible, it's also one of the longest, it might be the longest, I, I, I don't want to say absolutely because I'm, I'm not confident and I've done all my homework, but I know for a fact it's one of the longest, if not the longest, of the first century letters, ancient letters, um, ancient correspondence. And um, and for that reason, you know, it's it's an important letter, not only biblically, but just Historically, uh, it's an important letter. Uh, Some have said that this is Paul's um, magnum opus. Some have described this as the gospel according to Paul. Uh, And because of its importance and because of its richness, uh, pastors have historically gone very, very deep into this letter. Um, so John Piper, for instance, is a contemporary pastor and author, I think some of you know, I think it took him about 225 sermons to get through Romans, Uh, you know, 52 sermons a year, it's four years worth of sermons. Uh, Another pastor in our tradition who's with the Lord now, but he was uh, in London in the 19th century, his name, in the 20th century, I'm sorry, his name is Martin Lloyd-Jones, and It took him 12 years (laughs) to get through Romans. Uh, He would preach a Friday night series and go through Romans. And if you want to read his sermons, you have to order the 14-volume set of Romans anyway. uh, I'm going to try to get through this uh, in a year anyway. um, Let me, me, for starters, get us out of the gate here, talk about the greeting here because it's, it's his longest greeting of any of his letters, and again, it's sort of this run-on sentence where he just kind of keeps going on and on and on about some really important themes, themes that he's gonna keep coming back to over and over again uh, in the book, and then he reiterates at the end. But for starters, this greeting just follows a very predictable formula from the ancient world and ancient correspondence. They would, um, they would have the sender and then um, the recipient and then a greeting, and so, they flip it uh, from our current correspondence. When you write a letter, you go, dear so-and-so, and then you've got the content, and then you sign it sincerely, you know, um, if you actually mean that. Uh, sincerely, Essen, or whatever the case may be. Uh, so in Paul's case, he begins with the recipients, not the sender, uh, and he says, hey, you're uh, the saints in Rome. Um, and, uh, wait, I just mixed that up, didn't I? He begins with the sender. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Uh, and he uses this word servant. I want to just touch on that briefly because it's going to be relevant later on here. When he uses the word servant, it's translated servant, but the literal meaning of the word is slave. Uh, and there's some, some range here, and it's okay to translate it servant because it has a lot of different interpretations. But it's not the word that is very, very, commonly understood to be the word servant, uh, doulos um, uh, or diakonos, which is where we get our word deacon. So the deacons serve, and they do it voluntarily. uh, They're under no compulsion. They're doing it because they want to serve the Lord that way. Uh, A slave, on the other hand, a doulos, is somebody who's really um, understands their role. He has a master, and he is called to serve that master. Um, Obviously, there are Horrible, awful expressions of slavery uh, in history, Uh, and even today, uh, it's still happening around the world. There's still human trafficking, etc., and the church needs to be a voice against that. But for Paul, in his mind, he understands he's not just somebody who's serving others, like somebody who waits on tables. He is a slave who has a master, and his life is not his own. And that's important uh, for us to keep in mind. And he shares that understanding and that, that view of himself with m- most of the other New Testament writers where James introduces himself as James, the slave of Christ. Peter, the slave of Christ. Jude, the slave of Christ. John, the slave of Christ. So it's an important word. We've got to keep that in mind as we're look, looking through Romans. Okay, now to the recipients, um, to those in Rome. All those in Rome. Who's in Rome? (coughs) Paul's writing this letter presumably around 57 AD, he's in Corinth. And he's writing it to a uh, a mixed group of people. There's a lot of Jewish Christians, ethnically Jewish Christians in Rome, and there's a lot of Gentile or Greek or Roman Christians uh, who are in Rome. Now this wasn't always the case. Now go all the way back to Pentecost, and you know that from all around the Mediterranean world Uh, Jewish people had come and traveled to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. And then God pours out his spirit. All these people hear the gospel in their own language, and then they take the gospel back with them after believing and being converted, and they go back to their hometowns, their home countries with the gospel. So these previously Jewish believers are now Christians, and they go back to Rome. This is, you know, um, a couple decades prior to this book being written. And they established a church. They planted a church in Rome. And the Roman uh, community, the Roman church, is predominantly ethnically Jewish. Until about 49 A.D., when Emperor Claudius said, enough's enough, I don't want any more Jewish people in Rome because, and this is... This is good, it gives us uh, added, it supports the integrity of the Bible because even extra biblical historical sources, uh, this guy named Suetonius wrote about the riots in Rome under a man named Crestus. Now it's not something that you can take to the bank as your inheritance or your retirement, but most, historians and theologians believe that that's a variant spelling of Christ. That Claudius, in order to keep the peace in Rome and in order to maintain a a culture and and a society that has undiluted allegiance to the emperor, he didn't want anybody that wouldn't call the emperor Lord living in Rome. And you, of course, know that the Christians who were all around the ancient world, they were committed. They, just, they were going to declare that Christ is Lord, not Caesar. So what does Claudius do? He expels the Jewish people, religiously Jewish and you know the, those who were religiously Christian. If you had a Jewish background, you were gone. So in 49 AD, all the Christians leave. And then in 54 AD, Claudius dies. And with his death go... His edicts, they're no longer, they expire, they're no longer valid. So the Jewish community returns to Rome in 54 AD. And they come back to a community that when the Jewish Christians left the church, well, that created a vacuum. The Gentile believers then, you know, backfilled, they became leaders in the church, they began to, you know, sort of call the shots. And then the Jewish Christians come back and, well, can you imagine that there might be some issues there around 54 AD. These Jewish Christians who used to be in charge and used to sort of create the culture of that Roman church, they are now in a predominantly Greek cultured church. And that's why we need to keep in mind that what Paul is writing in this book, how you know there's incredible theological truth that's communicated here. We can't forget that it's also incredibly practical. There's a reason why Paul goes into the theological depth that he does and he's going to get to the hard tacks and the you know, the nitty gritty near the end of the letter and we're going to talk about that. But keep that in mind. There's a, there's a real audience and that makes sense to us as we think about what is Paul saying and why is he saying it. So these are the saints in Rome uh, and he's also giving them a greeting and his blessing, his prayer is, uh, is a lot of ancient correspondents would do. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Generic letters back in that time in the Greek world, Roman world, would use the word grace as their general greeting, their generic sort of prayer. It's like, you know, we use the word dear. Uh, Well, you know, we're putting some of our financial figures together as we're doing, preparing for tax season. Imagine writing a letter and you go, dear IRS. Um, you don't really mean it, but it's just sort of commonplace. You use the word dear. They would use the word grace same way. Paul means it, though. And he doesn't just say grace in a way that all of the sort of the Gentile, Roman, and Greek community would go, okay, he's speaking our language, but he adds the word peace. Why would he add peace? He sort of mixes up what's normal. He adds peace because that's the Jewish greeting, shalom. Grace to you and peace to you who have a you know gentile background and peace to you who have a jewish background you're now one you're one community one church and you've got to get along you've got to learn how to love one another and show mercy to one another as uh, as Paul's going to continue to share throughout his letter so that's the pattern of the greeting what's the content of the greeting There's a few things I think are worth pointing out, he uses the word called three times here. Verse 1, he says he's called to be an apostle. Verse 6, he says that the Roman Christians there were called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, he says you're called to be saints. When Paul talks about being called, he understands that his life is not his own. There's a calling on his life. He's called to be an apostle, and he's, he's even set apart for the gospel of God, there's a, there's a distinction you know, that his life bears. He's called by God, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. And then he turns uh, to the church in Rome, and he says, you were included in the gospel, in God's call, and you're called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints, that they're loved by this God and they are called to be like this God who's not just loving, but he's also holy. They're called to be like the one who's calling them. This isn't just true of the Roman church where Paul's talking about the reality of a calling on his life and on the people in Rome and their lives, but it's true for us too. God doesn't change and the way his way of relating to his people is the same. And that means that there's a calling on our lives. There's a calling on your life. There's a calling on my life. And it's God calling us. He's calling us to be saints. He's calling us to receive his love. He's calling us to identify with Jesus and you know, it, it's, it's something that we have to keep in mind because we live in a culture that thinks, you know, the only calling on my life is the one that I come up with myself. That it's my job. Uh, I'm going to go and get an education. I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to go kind of make something of myself. And I'm going I'm to determine my path. And while it's wonderful and good and a blessing that we live in a, in a country, we live in a culture where we have great freedoms... And people, yeah, if you work hard, generally you can accomplish some neat things in your life, and we're responsible to do good with what God's given us, but we also sometimes become immune, or we forget that that's not all that we enjoy. We not only enjoy a responsibility to do something with our lives that, you know, makes sense to us, and that seems to bring us pleasure, and so on, but... But there's an objective outside calling on our lives too that reminds us my life's not my own and your life isn't your own. There's a calling on your life. And that means that you're not your own. That means that God's got a, a say in how you live and what you do. It means that you also owe him a response. There's a responsibility to live your life consistent with the call that God has given you. And that's, that's a, a disturbing thing and a comforting thing. It disturbs us because, wait a minute, I thought I was calling my own shots. And then you realize, well, man, if I'm just alone in this world calling my own shots, that's not very comforting. I need help. And God says, I'm your Lord and I'm your shepherd and I'm going to lead you and I'm going to guide you. There's a calling on our lives. There's a calling on our lives by God to know God, to know about him. Um, this, these callings come from the one who's wooing us and calling us to himself. Um, last Sunday, all right, we're snowed out, and I'm trying to think, well, you know, how do we, what do we do this morning? You know, we're gonna do a little family church, we're gonna um, read a psalm, have some prayer, and then I thought, well, let's watch a sermon. Um, so, um, some of you know who Ravi Zacharias is, and um, I remember hearing about him when I was in college, and he's, he's brilliant, um, incredibly intelligent, goes around the world and speaks to people who generally are sort of agnostic, don't really know know what they think about God, maybe even haven't heard of Jesus Christ. And he speaks to all of the really smart people in these cities and in these countries and in these cultures. So Ravi Zacharias, in giving this sermon, was talking about the, the privilege of knowing God. And he quotes from someone who some of you have heard of who was a preacher in 19th century uh, named Spurgeon, and this was what Spurgeon said about knowing God. He said that the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. Spurgeon goes on to say that he who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Uh, by the way, Charles Spurgeon was 20 years old when he gave that sermon. Um, Spurgeon knows, Spurgeon knew, Robert Zacharias knows what Leon Morris says. that God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. Do you want to know about God? Is God someone you're trying to get to know better? Or um, maybe you think you've got God figured out. Um, You're ready to kind of move on to the the next intellectual pursuit. Uh, As if, you know, what's in this book and what God has been doing uh, to create the world and redeem the world is something that you can put in a box and, and put to the side and then move on to study something like investments or gardening. Um, you know What we're here to do is learn more about God. God is the great subject of our lives, and he's got this call in our lives, and we want to know the one who's called us. So how do you get to know God better? Well, obviously through his word, through worship, through prayer, through fellowship with other believers, through all the things that we do as church that I know can sometimes feel like you're going through the motions until you remember, why am I doing this? Why am I here? If you're new here and if you're new to even the gospel or new to this whole discussion about who is God, um, chances are you've seen a lot of kind of weird Christians. And sometimes that can even put people off to wanting to pursue God and know him better. But, you know, look at Jesus. Jesus is the clearest picture that we have of who God is. And if we want to know God better, we've got to know Jesus better. And that's the subject of Paul's letter as he focuses on Jesus. Romans is about who God is, about his love and about his mercy and about his justice and about his righteousness, and it's about what God has done. He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to be our redeemer and to love us and to show us his mercy. And that, that means that we've got to respond. Um, Paul uses this expression the obedience of faith. So those who belong to Christ are bound to Christ. Paul says he's a slave to Christ and you owe our master obedience. And, you know, the language here is the obedience of faith. There's a bunch here. Let me walk through it here real quickly about the content of what that faith is about. It's a faith in God. Verse 1, Paul says that it's about the gospel of God. Uh, The good news of God. It's the good news about God and it's the good news from God. They're kind of one and the same. Um, It's the good news from God. God gives us good things. And the best thing that He could ever give us is Himself. So it's good news from God and it's good news about God. And it's something that's not new, it's been promised. As you look in verse two, it's you know, Paul says, Hey, this has been talked about, proclaimed in the prophets and the holy scriptures. And, uh, and when we see Jesus, we see the fulfillment of all that God's been communicating to his people. And when, it's, when you look at Jesus, Paul says two things about him. Verses 3 and 4, he saw, it says that the son was descended from David, King David, the Jewish King David. Meaning that the son of David, this promised king would establish God's people on the earth. He would be the king that everybody had been waiting for, and he was promised through this lineage that this would be a human king who would come and he would restore God's people on the earth. But he's not just a human king. In verse 4, we're told that he's also declared to be not just the son of David, but the son of God. He's declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So he's not just a human king, Uh, He's the divine king. He's fully human and he's fully God. And he had to be both because he was the one who was going to reconcile God and sinful humanity. And that declaration happened through his resurrection from the dead. So if he was raised from the dead, that means something was prerequisite to the resurrection. And that was the crucifixion. And Jesus was crucified in order to take away the sentence for sin that humanity deserves. The thing about Jesus is that he came and he gave complete and total obedience to God. Fulfilled the law perfectly, never messed up, never had a bad day, never lost his temper, never just had a short curse word, uh, you know, leave his mouth, or nothing, never had anything like that, that we sort of just assume is small potatoes. Much less did he do anything major uh, that was against God. And he lived this perfectly fulfilling um, life of obedience to God and instead of being you know, uh, in a sense just raised up and glorified as we sort of think good works will do Jesus goes to the cross Jesus dies the death and suffers the sentence that somebody who's guilty would undergo and he did that as a substitute he did that to take the place for you and me who have rebelled against God who do deserve judgment And Jesus stood in the gap and said, I'm going to take that judgment on myself. I'm going to absorb it into myself. I'm going to take the death penalty for sin. And then when I raise from the dead, that means this sentence is done. It's paid. It's fulfilled. There's no more death sentence for those who are in Christ. This is the summary of what Paul's going to go on to say throughout the the book of Romans about how we can be, the fancy theological word is justified in God's sight. How we can be just as if we never sinned and can enjoy that restored relationship with God for an eternity. Paul says that what we owe the one who's called us into this relationship with him is the obedience of faith. Do you believe what God is communicating to us? Or will we refuse to believe that You give him the obedience of your faith to say yes to Jesus and then give him your faithful obedience which is to say yes, Jesus is my savior and then yes, he is also my king and I'm going to live the way he calls me to live. There's a calling on my life. This is the obedience of faith for the sake of God's name, for the sake of his praise as we are turned into people who no longer live for ourselves, but who live for him. And this is all of Paul's message in the beginning, and then let me jump and fast forward to the end of Romans. Um, If you go to the bookstore or pick up a a book at home or whatever, and you turn to the introduction, and uh, in the introduction you read the author saying, hey, this is what I'm going to write about. And then you you flip the pages and you go to the end to the conclusion, and then the author says, hey, this is what I wrote about. Um, Paul does the same thing. He gives these bookends to the book of Romans. So go to the end of Romans, chapter 16, the last verses of the book of Romans, beginning in verse 25. And Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, I know that's a mouthful. Uh, I want you to see the connections. I want you to see the parallel thoughts that Paul has and he's saying, I don't want you to miss this. Here's my introduction, and uh, let's run this uh, comparison. In in my introduction, I'm going to talk to you about things like the gospel. And then in my conclusion, I'm going to talk to you about things like the gospel. So here in chapter 1, very first verse, he's going to talk about the gospel of God. Very uh, third to the last verse of the end of the book, the gospel. And then he goes on to talk more about the promise of the prophets And how in chapter 16, as he closes it, hey, remember, this isn't something new. The prophets were telling us that this was true. To bring about the obedience of faith, this expression that he uses identically in the beginning and the end. And the goal, of course, being not just so that this ends on ourselves, where we just live happily ever after, but that our lives become a means for God to get glory among all the nations. For the name of Jesus to be praised in us and through us. So we've looked at the beginning of Romans, we've looked at the end of Romans, and I just want to wrap up with the middle of Romans. The middle of Romans is not um, chapter 8, you know, out of 16. Uh, the middle of Romans is chapter 12. And it's chapter 12, verse 1, is a, is a hinge. Um, there's a big hinge. There's a hefty hinge. There's a heavy-duty hinge uh, that is not new. It's been used. There's some tape on it, uh, paint, paint, uh, some grease that I now have on my hand. Um, anyway, this is a this is a well-used industrial strength hinge. And Romans twelve verse one is a hinge, a well-used industrial strength hinge. When I was uh, at JMU and I was a brand new Christian and trying to figure out, you know, what what is God, who is God, and wanting to know more about Him, I memorized. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Okay, So in view of God's mercy, this therefore becomes the hinge. And to give you a quick outline of the book of Romans, well, chapters 1 through 11 is God's mercy to us. And then chapters 12 through 16 is God's mercy through us. Mercy has so much to do with the love of God that you can't divide them. Um, we looked at chapter 1 about how we are loved by God and called to be saints. And in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul talks about the mercy of God instead of the love of God. Well, folks, they're really interchangeable. Listen to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, or um, some of you may remember the King James word, loving kindness. Have mercy upon me according to your, lo- your steadfast love, your loving kindness, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. God's love is a merciful love. His mercy is a loving mercy. I want to ask you, does that have any power in your life? Does that hinge work for you as you hear and receive the mercy of God to you? Is your life reflective of that hinge, that transition to demonstrate God's mercy through you? What does it mean to be loved by a merciful God? For Paul it was this hinge to live the rest of our lives in view of God's mercy and impacts everything. So let me conclude with just a series of questions. If God loves you and has been merciful to you, if God loves you and has been merciful to you, are you loving and merciful to your friends? If God loves you and has been merciful to you, Are you loving and merciful to your spouse if you're married? If God loves you and is merciful to you, are you loving and merciful to your kids? God loves you and is merciful to you. Are you loving and merciful to your parents? You Loving and merciful to your roommates. Are you loving and merciful to your co-workers? Are you loving and merciful to your supervisors? Are you loving and merciful to your employees? Are you loving and merciful to your neighbors? Are you loving and merciful to the checkout person at the grocery store? Are you loving and merciful to the, the snow plow driver who, you know, after you shovel your driveway, just Dumps it all back on your drive. If God is loving and merciful to you, are you loving and merciful to people who don't like you, who make fun of you, and who make things hard for you? Is this hinge working in your life? Is the gospel at work in you? Is the mercy of God to you, expressed through you? How will people know that God is loving and merciful to you if they don't experience the love and mercy of God through you? Let's pray. Father, none of us here has lived a life that is in constant complete conformity with your love and your mercy. You've given us so much. You gave us Jesus, uh, a, a gift we could never repay you for, and yet um, it's so easy uh, for us to, to lose sight of that, to not live in view of God's mercy. Would you just keep us more and more focused on Jesus? Would you help us to see more and more of Your love and mercy to us in Christ. And would you help us more and more to be a conduit uh, through which the world, the nations, and our neighbors can see the love and mercy that you show us through Jesus? Lord, if there's any here who are confused by what does it mean to receive your love and mercy, please uh, clarify that in their thinking, Lord. Let them see Jesus and his cross and his resurrection. And I pray for those of us who who do see that to never lose sight of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.